Welcome to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies and New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. Halloween is just around the corner, and so on today's episode, I'll be joined by horror flick aficionado Joe Fay to talk about the movie styles and legacies of two seminal horror filmmakers who both died in 2017, George A. Romero and Toby Hooper. But instead of retreading the familiar territory of these two directors' best-known and most influential works, Romero's 1968 Night of the Living Dead and Hooper's 1974 The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Joe and I will be focusing on two slightly deeper cuts, Romero's 1981 Arthurian biker drama Night Riders and Hooper's 1985 alien vampire flick Life Force. Alien vampire flick, such a great genre to be able to describe a movie with. Uh, We'll see if these celebrated horror auteurs' filmmaking ranges extend it much beyond zombies and cannibals, uh, and if there's any continuity in terms of style or substance or anything else between their horror and non-horror work. But first, I'm very happy to welcome back to the show Joe Fay. Joe is a rare book cataloger and bookseller for New Haven's William Reese Company, a film programmer uh, throughout New Haven at various locations, usually in Westville, and a knowledgeable resource on VHS, exploitation cinema, and pop culture horror from the 70s and 80s. Joe's been on the program many times, including on episode 55 back in November 2016, when we spoke in detail about his love for none other than Toby Hooper's The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So, Joe, welcome back to your second Toby Hooper show. Thank you. But your first George Romero show. Yes. And uh, it's always a pleasure to have you here. Yeah, I can't believe they're gone. I know, back within a couple of weeks of one another, right? In, yeah, it's really, really In the sad. summer of 2017. Okay, so I... Um, Put together a little bit of background on each filmmaker for listeners who may not be familiar with them. We'll see sure. if I uh, read all of it. And I think it's quite telling that I found a lot more about George Romero than about Toby Hooper. Yep. <laughs> I think a lot more has been written about Romero. And we can talk about this, but I think that he is much more um, of an accepted kind of critical darling of right. a filmmaker. Uh, and I, I would argue rightfully so uh, than yeah. Toby Hooper. But so for people who are not aware of uh, anything that we're talking about, uh, George, <laughs> yeah. George A. Romero uh, born in 1940 in the Bronx to a Lithu- Lithuanian-American mom and a Spanish-Cuban dad. Uh, his dad was a commercial artist and also a, a flag maker. I guess he designed, at the time, the largest American flag in the world uh, for some victory parade after the end of World War II. Uh, he was weaned on the Million Dollar Movie TV program, which played first-run feature films twice a night for a week on TV. And he started making movies as a teen after getting an 8mm camera from a rich uncle in Scarsdale. Uh, there's this wonderful anecdote, anecdote that I think Nick Pinkerton mentions in his film comment, Obituary on Romero, but it comes up. The minute you start looking for Romero, you find when he was a teenager, he got reprimanded pretty seriously by the local cops because right. he threw a flaming dummy, like a dummy on fire from the roof of his building while making a high school movie called The Man from the Meteor. The Man from the Meteor. So even back back as a teenager, Romero was exploring the, the horror genre. So Romero moved to Pittsburgh to study art at Carnegie Institute of Technology. And although he didn't graduate, he'd spend almost the entirety of his filmmaking career based out of that western Pennsylvania steel city. Developed his filmmaking chops working on beer commercials, industrial films, then started his own independent production company, eventually scrambling enough money together to make Night of the Living Dead in 1968, which had become the most iconic low-budget cult classic zombie picture ever made. Uh, After the success of Night, Romero stayed fiercely independent from the Hollywood studio system, producing mostly horror movies, The Crazies, Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, Creepshow, but also a few non-horror flicks throughout the 70s, 80s, and 90s, all out of his home base of Pittsburgh. He died in Toronto, Canada uh, this summer. And then very briefly, Toby Hooper, 
born in Austin, Texas in 1943, uh, kind of revolutionized the, the horror genre in 74 with his low-budget slasher pick, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. He also directed, I guess it's always been a bit contentious as to what his role was in the project, but he directed the Steven Spielberg-produced Poltergeist, the Haunted right. House film from 1982, uh, and really the rest of his career was defined by his association with Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I mean, he was mm-hmm. brought on for various horror anthologies. He did a lot of Texas Chainsaw sequels and remakes. Um, and he too died uh, at his home in California this past summer. So with those brief biographical details out of the way, Joe, could you tell us a bit about your personal relationship with, how about Romero first okay. and then and then Hooper? Uh, right. How did you get to know the films of these guys and what do they mean to you as a, as a developing cinephile. Sure. Uh, George Romero was, well, they've, okay, so both are sort of always, have always been uh, with me as far as I can remember because my, my parents really liked Night of the Living Dead and I grew up in Texas, so Texas Chainsaw Massacre was always in the air. Um, I actually have interesting anecdotes, and I'll try to keep them brief, about meeting each of these guys. So uh, I, I met George Romero... Well, like thousands of others, I met George Romero at, at a convention, at at horror conven- at a horror convention. I actually met him a few times because he he was very gracious with his time at at, at festivals and and at, at conventions, uh, and would really just sit and sign anything all day. Um, but I uh, had so I so I met him you know at his table a few times. But I had uh, and which convention was Texas this Frightmare Weekend mostly in uh, in Dallas and. There was a screening. He did a few screenings before he passed away at the Alamo Draft House in Dallas, uh, in Richardson. And there was a screening of. I actually got to watch Dawn of the Dead with George Romero in attendance, and a, and a couple other people. Uh, a couple of the actors showed up with him because they were all doing Texas Frightmare Weekend. And he took questions at the end. And you know, I, there are a million questions I've always a- wanted to ask him, but you know, most of the questions. I think that I would ask him are probably generally have been covered by journalists or other fans, or I can find answers to them on the internet or whatever. So I had the chance to ask him if the theme song to the Ted Danson, Leslie Nielsen part of creep show, uh, was a minor key version of, uh, of camp town races. <laughs> and he said, absolutely. It is. No one's ever as- asked me that question before. Uh, because it's and when you listen to it, you sound it sounds like it. So me, you know, I was kind of rifling through the list of questions, thinking like, what what is the most like movie nerdish question I could ask him here at this con- at, at this screening? And that was it. And he like responded very very energetically to being asked this question. So that's sort of my George Romero story. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time in Austin, and so I would see T- Toby Hooper around once in a while. He didn't spend a whole lot of time. In Austin in the 90s and 2000s, he, he spent a lot of time in Europe and in California, uh, but he showed up for a screening of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre uh, in 1998, I believe. It was 97, 98, 99, somewhere in there. And there, there was an event poster, and he was sitting there signing copies of this event poster. with a. It was a black poster with uh, uh, about the, the screening with Leatherface, prominently on the on the on the poster and uh he was sitting there and it was black background so he's sitting there signing with a silver pen and i'm in line and 
the line goes down, the line goes down, the screening's getting closer, the screen, and then the line goes down, and I get up to, it's me. I'm in front of to- Toby Hooper. I meet him. Hey, love this movie. Thanks for you know all the, all the great movies. And he reaches down to sign to Joe, and gets th- get, makes the T, and the silver pen runs out, and that's it. It's time for the screening. The, so they can't find another pen, and so it's and it's time to go in for the movie. So I still have this like eleven by seventeen event poster, <laughs> uh, event screening poster for Texas Chainsaw Massacre with a big silver T with a silver T, and that's all that there is. <laughs> that's so, great. Yeah, those are my those are my stories. Um, you know, when we when you came on to talk about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre a few months ago, you said that there were two very in parts of very important parts of that movie uh, that encouraged your kind of love for it yeah. as a as a young man as a teenager watching it. And one is that it took place in Texas. Right. Right. And two is that you were told that the people who, who committed these atrocities were never caught. Right. And regardless of what, of your thoughts on the movie as a, as a movie that the, those two elements of the story were so captivating to you that they, they kind of propelled you through your, your love of horror. And I think that, um, you know, both of these filmmakers are, um, you know, very intimately associated with the regions in which they right. worked, or Absolutely. at least at least their most iconic works, Romero in Pittsburgh right. uh, and Hooper in Texas. And I wonder if besides that regional affiliation, I mean, when you heard, you know, when you thought of a Romero movie, either now or as a teenager, when you thought of a Hooper movie, right. what what came to mind? What what defined these types of movies to you? Re- really, I mean, after uh, very quickly, you know, being... Uh, watching Romero movies, it became very clear that this guy was from Pittsburgh. Like it, it, you couldn't separate the working class kind of attitude of of Pittsburgh from the Romero movies. Um, with and with with Hooper, it the the thing with Hooper is unless it's a Texas Chainsaw movie, you really can't tell where. It, and it, and it actually he made a lot of, or you know his first movie Eggshells is obviously in filmed in Austin. And then Texas Chainsaw 1 and 2 are filmed in Texas. Very Texas-y. But then one difference with Hooper is that... Uh, Hooper from Romero is that Hooper wanted to go Hollywood. And Romero never did. And so you can tell with movies like The Fun House and Poltergeist and even Life Force and beyond that this is a guy who had, had bigger stories to tell. I think, in a sense, Hooper has these big, wants to tell these big stories, and Romero wants to tell these sort of intimate, hmm. intimate stories. Do you see that in uh, that budding, that urge to tell a big story in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre as well, in that most iconic work of Hooper's, or is that uh, kind of looking at his broader career? Because certainly, yeah. you know, Texas Chainsaw and Night of the Living Dead. I think Night of the Living Dead was made for $100,000, right. uh, Texas Chainsaw for $300,000. Right. These are very small stories, right. uh, in, really set in one house. Right. Um, and yet, you're right, Ho- Hooper's career, I mean, uh, he would describe Life Force as his take on like a, a 70 millimeter hammer, like British hammer film. Right, exactly. And this That's is like an he, epic yeah, British Italy, yeah, film. And it's, sort of. you know, it's, it nominally takes place in London. It's right. kind of debatable that how much it really feels like London. Right. But this is uh, an intergalactic movie as well. Right. Um, but do you see even in maybe that most definitive of Hooper works a longing to break the mold uh, from I don't know the hyper regionalism that Romero is so defined by? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, um, the 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 funny part is 
there's there's a, a there's almost a direct line from George Romero to Wes Craven, in 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 that George Romero makes Night of the Living Dead. Toby Hooper sees Night of the Living Dead and says, "I can do that," and makes Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And then Wes Craven sees Texas Chainsaw Massacre and says, "I can do that," and makes Last House on the Left. And there's this sort of continuum with these guys. Um, you know, I didn't know Hooper Hooper personally. I'm just judging by the filmography that this was a guy, and I think he said it in in, in some interviews that he wanted to tell bigger stories. He wanted to be a Hollywood director, and it just took him. You know the Eggshells was a, an absolute bomb, and it's nothing like any other of his movies. It's like a 60s psychedelic, very Linklater-ish kind of movie, uh, or at least very slackerish kind of thing. Um, and so they needed to make something more commercial. And horror was in the air in the early 70s strictly because of George Romero. And so Hooper sets out to make his Night of the Living Dead. And what does he have around to draw from? But these stories he's been told by his family in Wisconsin about this serial killer and, and who decorated his house with body parts and all this stuff. And Hooper never knew Ed Gein's name until after he'd made Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But, he, but, he, but his family would just tell him these stories about this weirdo in Wisconsin. And so he brought that and sort of made it a Texas thing. And um, I think... He used what he had available to him to make the story he could make at the time uh, and strictly for commercial purposes. You know, I, I love how I love the connection between Texas Chainsaw and Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho in both pulling right. from the story of that game. But also, I mean, the tactics that each filmmaker uses to scare the audience are, you know, building up of suspense. Right. Um, and also very intense close-ups on victims right. either holding up knives or if you remember that moment in Texas Chainsaw where we're like literally in the eyeball of, right. of one of the characters. Absolutely. Like it doesn't get any more intimate than that. Um, and whereas Romero in Night of the Living Dead and throughout his career was probably most inspired by comic books. He seemed to be pulling from, Absolutely. I think, EC Yeah, comics. it comes out very specifically later. And I Am show. Legend, uh, a, a story that, that really right. inspired um, uh, Night of the Living Dead. But I'd, I'd be remiss if in, before we jump into... Um, Night Riders and Life Force. If we didn't just run through a few of the themes that critics over the years have identified most, you know, associated with Romero's work, sure. because he's really one who's been picked apart by critics yeah. and quite lovingly so. Um, he's been celebrated as an independent regional filmmaker, as we've right. been talking about. Um, this Nick Pinkerton called him a master of controlled chaos in mm -hmm. that uh, in that obit for the for film comment, and I think that is is quite applicable the way that the camera rarely moves the frames are highly composed and the there's a lot of editing but also the, the way that characters move within the frame is right. what causes um so much tension as opposed to a constantly kind of whirling or zooming or, right or, right yeah and they're usually fuller frames too ex yes exactly and watching night of the living dead again just the the lighting the the angle the canted angles the right. a lot of low angle shots yeah um and then of course this tension between an idealism and romance Romanticism and longing for uh, kind of uh, I don't know purer, usually masculine ideals of mm -hmm. chivalry mm -hmm. uh, in tension with the crass commercialism of of capitalism and Hollywood culture. So right. those things seem to appear, you know, again and again and again in Romero's work, as we'll see in Night Riders. Any other big right. things that before we jump into Night Riders? Um, it, he seems to be somebody, and you may have you may have this may be embedded in what you were just talking about, but this this sense that he reflected his own culture. 
at each stage of whatever movie he was making um, with the more popular things. Hmm. Uh, with Knight Riders, I, maybe not so specifically, but you know there are themes in each of the dead, the original Dead trilogy that reflect the kind of the the times they were made in. You know, with Night of the Living Dead, it's sort of a uh, a reaction to, especially with Dwayne Jones being a black guy in the lead. You know, sort of a reaction to the '60s counterculture and civil rights movement. And then you have Dawn of the Dead with its overt and obvious. Um, comments on consumerism uh, and with Ken Foray's speech about, you know, they're here because this is what they know. You know, they're they're coming to a familiar place. And with Day of the Dead sort of being a reaction to uh, the militarization and the Cold War and the Reagan era. So, you know, you, you have these very specific reactions, whether he ever intended them or not. You know, I mean, Romero never took credit for casting Dwayne Jones to make a political statement. Mm-hmm. He was simply... According to Romero, just the best actor he saw for the role. Uh, and so you have these, and, and on and on with the mall, it was a convenient location, you know, according to him. Right. So you have these things that on, on the surface uh, seem like things he may have intended, and, and you, wow, isn't he a genius for doing that? But in the end, maybe he just it was just underneath and I, th- I think that, you know, as a lot of filmmakers are somewhat coy about the specific intention of any given, right. you know, decision that goes into making a movie. But I think that, you know, from the very start, knowing how adamantly he fought to be independent of Hollywood, uh, how he maintained his production studio, you know, at the other end of the continent in, yeah. in Pittsburgh, that in itself is a political statement that kind of trickles down in, right. into the movies, right? Uh, but you're right. Yeah, he's, he says Dwayne Jones uh, was not necessarily a specific political statement, but then he said that he just kind of walked around the small Pennsylvania town uh, looking for, you know, police officers and other people to right. form this lynch mob at the end of the movie. And people were, you know, they were game to, yeah, to participate sure, it and sure. ultimately killed Dwayne Jones. So. And also during Night Riders, well, you know, just to, so I don't forget to mention this later, uh, the when they were filming Night Riders, the the where the towns where they were filming that that movie, they reacted very negatively to Ken mm. Foray being there, just being there. They said, well, "Who's this black guy? Why is he here?" And so you have this constant, you know, pressure and 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 um, what's the word tension, you know, created by by just you know the just a black guy being present at all. So, you know what, let's, let's jump in. This, yeah. Well, first, uh, you're listening to Deep Focus on WNHH LP, New Haven's home for community radio. I'm your host, Tom Breen, and I'm talking with Joe Fay uh, about two lesser-known works by two iconic horror filmmakers who both passed away in 2017, George A. Romero and Toby Hooper. So, Night Riders. Yeah. Joe, I'd never even heard of this movie before you <laughs> mentioned it a few weeks ago that you wanted to talk about it on a Romero retrospective. Oh, good. Uh, you wanted to dive a little bit deeper than the, the Dead trilogy or Creep Show. Uh, and Night Riders, a 1981 film starring Ed Harris. Right. I think this is his first lead. He's a very, it a, is a very young uh, Ed Harris as a. Hmm. Let's see. What is the best way? To, he's a messianic uh, Arthurian yeah, leader yeah. of a kind of Renaissance, like historical recreation troupe who goes around kind of leading this merry band of pranksters who. Right perform at these carnivals right they joust with wooden lances they, they have do. these play maces they have play axes and they they put on a show for the crowd but instead of reliving the arthurian drama atop horses they right. ride motorcycles motorcycles uh how did you first come across this movie and upon a a subsequent rewatch how's it hold up to you um first saw this movie in the late 90s 
uh, was living with a group of friends in Austin, and and one of one of my roommates was uh, and still is a huge Romero fan, and uh, I'd I'd never heard of it at that time either, and I think that's sort of a common reaction amongst people who even who even are fans of the Dead trilogy. They go, "What is Night Riders? I've never heard of it," or oh, "No, I, I'm not interested." And it's a shame because it's a really, a really amazing movie. Um, so I first heard about it then, and uh, I, I just, I just love it. You know this. It, well, I was going to say that what so blew me away about this movie is that you hear like people dressing up in medieval English garb, riding right. motorcycles, and you yeah. immediately think something like, or at least I thought, Death Race two thousand, or this right. type of kind of Roger Corman as B movie that's very campy, very fun, filled right. with splatter and guts. Right. And the the posters of Ed Harris, you know, in full yeah. night armor atop a motorcycle. But when you watch the movie, it's this incredibly earnest, heartfelt, like existentially angsty yeah. movie about uh, idealism escapism, versus commercialism. I, yeah, idealism, escapism, and sort of utopian community, how a utopian community might function or try to survive in a world that's trying to impede commerce upon it you know that romero didn't like the poster he thought it was it, it was a it's a beautiful painting by boris vallejo but it also says really nothing about it, it it at one point says everything and nothing about the movie i mean it has ed harris on a on a in an arturian garb on a motorcycle and that's it the word night riders at the top and he thought well that's okay but what else you know in the background they could have had all these you know scenes of the of the Renaissance fairs and things like that. Um, but he really didn't feel it was marketed well, but he also understands that it was an incredibly difficult movie to market. And it, it, it just, it never found its, it still hasn't found its audience. It's, it's amongst people who've seen it. They generally love it after they've seen it. Um, but it's, it's still not well, very well known at all. So this, uh, let's maybe we can uh, start talking about this movie in while thinking about some of the themes that we ran through right. that are common to Romero's work. Yeah. Um, I mean, what did this is a, a pretty long movie? It's about it two is. and a half hours long. Yeah. A, and it is filled with this again, like existential concern experienced by the leader of this group about right. you know how much or how little or really how much to resist selling right. out uh, right. to provide for his a group very of friends. Mary and our yeah. Um, did you, I mean, do you find this to be, is this a silly movie? Is this to, an earnest statement? Does this have something profound to say about the compromises that one makes for art or yeah. is it, uh, just, uh, I, I don't know, a goofy way to put people on motorcycles and have them yeah, bash each other with lances. It's a, it's a, it's a goofy concept. And even it, it took Romero a long time to come around to the idea of motorcycles, which was not his original idea. His original idea was on horseback. You know, you have this art, and he had he had worked with and and heard of, um, or he had talked to people in the Pennsylvania Society for Creative Anachronism, who are stood there and then and they're still around. They're the people who are responsible for the modern day Renaissance fairs, and so so. But he loved this idea that, and and he very much identified with this idea that there were people living out of their own time and trying to create their and live in in live inside their own their own world essentially in this world which you know the parallel is that Romero could have gone Hollywood at any time and resisted it until his dying day I mean he 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 had 
He could have directed any number of Hollywood movies in the set late 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, 2010s, it, but he never he never wanted to. And I think this movie, his second favorite movie, by the way, uh, after Martin, is the perfect distillation of this idea that um, leave us alone. We'll, we want to do our own thing. We'll entertain you. But when the day's over, we're going to retreat into our, our own ensemble world and live by our own rules. And this is, I mean, Ed Harris's Billy... Billy the King, I forget what it is, Billy Davis, Billy Davis is really yeah. fashioning a utopia, uh, this is. utopian society that is, again, removed from the 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 pressures and uh, compromises inherent yep. to living in like a capitalist society where uh, your labor is what defines your worth as right. opposed to some other value system that they're looking to uphold. In this case, quite specifically, the Artorian value system of chivalry. Right. Um, and... I, th- I think that the parallels to Romero's quest to be an independent filmmaker and to champion issues of social justice in his films. We were right. talking about Dwayne Jones and the racial justice elements of Night of the Living Dead. Right. Here, the troupe consists of uh, a, a gay man, a black right. man, right. an Indian, yep. uh, in addition to Tom Savini's wonderful kind of macho frenemy, uh, Morgan. Yes. Morgan um, is so great. <laughs> And I guess Tom Savini was also the makeup man for a lot of Romero films. He was. Oh, yeah, for for most all of them. Most of the dead, yeah. 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 Um, So, I mean, this utopian society that he fashions is incredibly appealing, but it's also in the context of this incredibly kind of dynamic, active, uh, you know, uh, set this backdrop of motorcycle jousting. And I think that, you know, it's no mean feat that Romero is able to film these, like, these 20-minute battles where the cameraman michael gornick is literally right alongside the motorcycle he's right with these guys as they're as they're flying kind of head on into one another and the stunts that they are able to pull off in these motorcycles yeah uh is just incredible i mean talk about practical effects work like Absolutely. these people are going flying through yeah. Yeah. uh crowds and yeah they're using old uh, john ford you know western tricks where they're putting they're attaching ropes to the to the front wheels of motorcycles and when the rope runs out, they flip over the front of these bikes. And, you know, several people were hurt, but, you know, it was all to service. Really a pretty amazing set set pieces. And, you know, it's such an interesting counter to the threat posed by the zombies in Night of the Living Dead, which right. move very slowly and are kind of comically uh, innocuous until, one, they get too close, mm-hmm. and two, they form too big of a group. Right. So you can kind of laugh and run away from them until they're right up on you, and then they're clawing you from piece to piece. Here... Everyone is moving at a mile a minute. Right. Uh, it's one-on-one encounters, but it's also it's it's dangerous, but also exciting and rewarding activity. Uh, absolutely, right? this incredibly dynamic activity is one as a source of joy, as right. opposed to one of kind of threatening consumption by right by zombies. Yeah, they 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 do the work they want to do and live the life they want to live, despite pressures from you know PR firms and and people who want to take them into the magazines and take them into and, and being more famous and create product lines for them uh, or the police, you know, in certain towns, they, they, they're, they're a traveling carnival. So they, you know, encounter um, police at one, at least at one point uh, that are uh, quite a challenge to their, to their ideas. Right. The antagonists in Romero movies are police officers and yeah. uh, ad men, you know, mar- marketing right. men. Yeah. Um, what did you think of Ed Harris's performance as as the lead here? Yeah, you know it's 
it's it's Ed Harris being Ed Harris. You know, the, I, I don't. There are a few people who yell as effectively and as are intimidating as when you know when Ed Harris loses it. It's get out of the way, man. Um, In particular, when he's behind, when he's kind of helpless uh, at protecting Bagman, who's getting beaten up by the cop. And exactly. He's, he's he's at this local county jail and right. he's just banging against the bars and right. screaming his head off. Yeah, you know, but you can, you, throughout the movie, you can see, you can see the struggle of, of Billy all over Ed Harris's face. You know, watching Ed Harris ride a motorcycle is better than some people doing Shakespeare, you know, and, and you can just watch on his face, especially, and we won't ruin it for people who haven't seen it, but the last scene, when he comes to this realization. Favorite scene in the movie. It's, yeah. it's, it's really amazing. And he just comes to peace and mm-hmm. then what happens happens um and you can take from that what you will but well it's re- i mean we're talking about a few influences for romero and hooper and i see easy rider is all over this movie oh, as well good, yeah not just in not just the sheer motorcycle you know right. the use of motorcycles in both but that ending and the lament for the loss of the idealism of the 60s right although i don't think it's too sour and in fact at the end of this movie the uh continuation of this value system right. removed from capitalism is kind of you know there's there's hope for it. It's right? the next uh, the next yeah the kid you know the next uh, generation in I, a sense. I do love how Romero in crafting this figure of Billy as the leader of the group is maybe implicit maybe not consciously being quite critical of the dictatorial elements of being a director. Like yeah. he's not. Um, Ed Harris says that he does not want to be you know mistaken for Charles Manson or Evil Knievel right, right? or right. Jones Jim Jones, right. and yet there are unmistakable like similarities between the two. Like yeah. they, they're trying to craft this utopian society, but they're also a cult of personality. They are. A cult and it's of kind of scary. And you know, at, at a certain point, the, the people, the other, his followers uh, to a certain, if you want to call them that, uh, sort of rebel against him. And uh, you can imagine that Romero has felt some sense of that throughout his mm. early career. And, uh, uh, you know, it's 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 no secret if you know a little bit about Romero's career uh, as to why he really he loved this movie until the day he died. You know, or through uh, still loves this movie as his spirit wanders around us. And even though Billy's at the center of it, it's such an ensemble piece, right? Tom is. Savini is as you know important to the story and gets right. maybe as much screen time as as Ed Harris, absolutely, uh, as well as the characters who play Merlin, who play the Lancelot right. and right. Pippin. Yeah, Romero fought for for Savini in that role. The mm-hmm. producers didn't didn't really want him, um, but he fought for him and got him. And uh, he actually wanted Morgan Freeman. For the role mm. of of Merlin, but um, Morgan Freeman in the audition didn't like the way Romero had written, and and actually referred to um, Merlin as a black guy, mm. and so um, Morgan Freeman wasn't ultimately cast or didn't want the role. And that you know that is so the Merlin character is black. I think the actor's name is Brother Blue. Brother Blue, that's uh, right. who was this professional storyteller he and was. jazz man. I love how he. I don't think we see his harmonica ever in the movie, but he just kind of leans his he mouth does. into his sleeve, yeah. and then we hear the harmonica playing. Right. And that's really the the you know closest to a love relationship that we get in this movie is between Merlin and, and Absolutely. Arthur. Um, Absolutely. In fact, they say "I love you" to one another right. at, at the end of the movie. They do. Um, now. Let's uh, let's jump over to Life Force because sure. uh, as as we proceed in this episode, and Joe, it's going to be, I think, a harder sell 
for yeah. you to convince me that Life Force is right. a continuation of a wonderful uh, trajectory of an auteur horror filmmaker who yeah. was as good working outside of horror okay. as not. Well, I liked Life Force, but, um, but tell, tell me about how you came I, to this movie and what's going on in it. I, I, I didn't necessarily need to sell it to you or want to sell it to you. I just, I, I think it's an underseen. I think yeah. both of the main, one of the main reasons I picked these two are they're just almost uh, embarrassingly underseen examples of these two guys. And both work. big commercial flops when they came they out are. at the time. Now, Life Force cost orders of magnitude more to produce, right. which right. is all the more interesting. Well, it, you know, Life Force... Was, and could you tell us basically what it's about, too? Sure, sure. Life Force or The Space Vampires, which really tells you everything you need to know about the movie was released in 1985. It was produced through Canon Pictures or Canon Films. Uh, so it's a Golan and Globus uh, monstrosity as they were. Uh, and it was right in the middle of the, the Canon run in the 80s uh, where they would give you a budget and leave you alone. Mm. And actually, it, both of these movies, both Knight Riders and Life Force, are the first of three-picture deals that each of these directors worked with um and i think are certainly the most interesting of the movies that resulted from said three picture deal and this i mean uh what was it night riders came out a few years after dawn of the dead which was a big commercial success however independent produced and life force came out three years after poltergeist yes which gave a lot of kind of right. hollywood cachet to yeah life Toby force Cooper. is coming off poltergeist who had, you know and at the time say what you will about i don't really care how what percentage of poltergeist spielberg directed or versus hooper it's they're in a certain sense everybody's right uh, yes spielberg directed certain segments and probably stuck his nose in more than he would have you know otherwise uh but in any case so hooper's coming off poltergeist and he's given free reign by canon to make he's given a, a free reign the book and uh told to go make you know whatever movie he wants to make and so he takes colin wilson's space vampires and gets uh dan o'bannon one of the writers to, to be one of the screenwriters who uh, who was probably most famous for having written Alien, and this movie actually begins almost exactly like the first Alien movie. You have this group of people in space who encounter a, a derelict spacecraft. They board or a planet in the sense of Alien, and so they board the spacecraft and and find you know aliens asleep. Essentially, uh, and one of then they find three people, uh, or three aliens in human form, we should say. One played by the lovely Matilda May, and so these aliens are pristinely preserved. Yes, very attractive. Yes, very naked. Very naked, and particularly Matilda May. Matilda who May doesn't get much more naked than that's right than anyone could possibly be, and remains <laughs> naked throughout most of well, the rest of the movie. Really, whenever you see her, uh, she. You know, being an alien, she doesn't feel the need to, to put clothes on. So, yes, they they bring three of these aliens uh, back to Earth, uh, back to London, and um, all hell breaks loose, in a sense. And I I, I like, I, I just always have a soft, ha, have had a soft spot for this movie because it's, it's a, it's Toby Hooper, um, outside living outside hollywood with but still like throwing everything 
at the audience is in terms of special effects. Can I identify just one of my favorite sure. of those? Because I think that maybe if we're if we can apply any kind of auteur theory to yeah. uh, to Hooper as well, I feel like his mode is all right. Here is what traditional horror does. Here's what traditional action does. I'm going to take it three steps further. <laughs> exactly. And one of my favorite details here is that so we have these space vampires who suck the life force, right. <laughs> whatever that exactly. may be, out of their. No, that's uns- exactly why it's uns- called life force. Unsuspecting, sexually attracted, uh, kind of male victims, and right. then these victims are rendered these kind of desiccated, right. horrible corpse-like bodies yep. for about two hours after the initial kiss, and then if they're not able to suck the life force of someone else. These bodies explode. Turn to dust. Explode <laughs> like into dust. Explode. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that detail of the bodies just exploding. <laughs> and there's so many scenes, especially early on in the movie, when scientists and astronauts and different military officials are looking through a glass window. Yep. And they're like looking at their clock. They're like, all right, it's almost yep. two hours. It's, yeah, they're <laughs> counting down the seconds. And it explodes and they move on to the next room. Yeah, it has a certain <laughs> 80s logic there. Uh, yeah, it's like they're counting down. And right when the, 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 the counter hits two hours, they blow up. Um yeah, I you know I I was thinking about it, you know, and we were we were tied into Life Force, but I I probably could have picked something like, you know, uh his remake of Invaders from Mars to also illustrate just how how different his movie, his later movies were from or or a an unknown movie was from the movies everybody knows. I mean, Life Force is a fascinatingly ambitious movie. It is. I mean, it's let's very. Talk about the cast for a second. Patrick Stewart. Patrick Stewart <laughs> so is. It's our second Patrick Stewart movie that we spoke about after Green Room. That's Jeremy right. Sonier's yeah, Green I Room. didn't notice that. Um, yeah. And Frank Finlay, Peter Firth, uh, Peter Firth yeah. are all like relatively prominent Absolutely. British actors. Steve Railsback at the time was you know he's not so much known these days, but he was a you know a a B level star in the seventies, you know, with movies like the stunt man. And he still has my favorite cameo in, in any movie of, uh, in armed and dangerous when he plays the, the truck driver at the end who takes John candy (laughs) to, to the, to the finale of the movie. Um, Steve, yeah, Railsback is an interesting actor, and it, it's looking back on it. It's like, he's interesting, but I don't know if he's this kind of leading man. Um, but I mean, well, he have, just kind of that character snaps a lot. It does. Right? So yeah. this is the the. I guess there is one scene in Texas in which Railsback's Colonel, uh, what's his name? I read Colonel Kane. No, Colonel Car- Carlson. Yeah, uh, Carlson makes right. it kind of crash lands this space pod into the deserts of Texas, and right. he's scooped up by the by the British uh, intelligence and brought over to London, right. straight to London. And he's really I, well for part of the plot uh, reasons. He's kind of Im- ingested part of the the vampire's powers, and he's still part yeah. of human. He's able to read the minds of different right. vampires, but most importantly, he freaks out a lot, especially yes. whenever he's in the vicinity of someone who may be harboring this vampire right, presence. Right. And so there's a lot of rails back kind of grabbing women and just kind of shaking them and saying, yeah. are you in there? Exactly. Yeah, he's sort of like a like the, the, the test that they do in the thing. He's sort of like a living, breathing, walking version right. of, of that. Or, or, you know, like the dead zone when, you know, walking can touch people and, and see their, you know, right. their deepest darkest and it's kind of funny for a movie of such a big budget those moments of like telekinesis are are just steve rails back telling the audience like i can tell you know by touching this person you don't need to see anything i can tell that yeah but that's part of the drama too i mean what are there do you have any favorite scenes in this movie favorite moments the double plungers to the neck when patrick stewart uh, the patrick stewart sequence i think is my favorite i agree um he plays the head of a hospital for the criminally insane right right and he's pretty big and broad and then you know 
it, there's this moment when Railsback sort of like turns to somebody. He's like, "Yeah, I know what he, I, he's one of them because I touch him on the shoulder." <laughs> you know, like, and it's it's just this. It's it's way. It, I I like Life Force for the reasons that I like most ridiculous '80s horror is that it's just so much. It's it's big. It's broad. There's explosions, and it's just damn good fun and there's i mean really the most important part the most memorable part of this movie is matilda may walking around naked, naked the whole yeah. time. i mean she's she's in about i don't know 40 percent of the movie and right. she is a very attractive young woman and yep. very naked and characters right. are freaking out about how sexually attracted they are to her right. in a terrible way I think right exactly but yeah, and see, there's you know probably a, a thesis in there just from this movie about how how these people react to her because yeah she's incredibly incredibly gorgeous woman and um, it's it's really funny to see how these people react to her. I did notice, and this is something I, I was looking through my notes on Texas Chainsaw from our last episode, and I saw that there are a lot of low angle shots in Texas Chainsaw, especially in mm-hmm. the the sequences where we have characters running through the woods. Yeah, <laughs> and it's it's intimate, but also a very destabilizing perspective to look right. at someone when you're kind of very close up, but about three feet underneath where eye right. level is. And I found that perspective to be all over Life Force. Uh, they're constant, but they're all these group shot, low right. angle shots where we have like three people in this widescreen format, right. and we're like, you know, just from the ground looking up. Yeah. And it's very strange. There's a lot of distortion. Like people look uh, like oblong right. <laughs> from that perspective. I kind of liked it, but it was also it was just a very strange way for this big budget, you know, yeah. action movie to show its characters. Yeah. No, I I I, I don't think I've noticed that before, but it's an interesting thing. Yeah. Um, any other life force uh, thoughts you care to share? I mean, clearly Hooper is not someone who um, has the same. Well, I was, was going to say artistic ambitions as Romero, but maybe that's not true. I mean, clearly he right. you know made a ten million dollar movie and was right. trying to tell some kind of story about space vampires. But he wanted he was longing for more commercial success. Yeah, than, and I, than I, I, he was longing for commercial success, and he finally got got a got you know a a movie that was just all it was all him you know and it, what it, do whatever you want this you have to do this thing but make it however you want and we're going to leave you alone um which you know he hadn't really he hadn't really experienced since chainsaw and uh even on chainsaw the movie the movie was sort of taken at at least the money that that movie made uh was taken out of his hands shortly thereafter uh so you know basically the mob owns chainsaw and and um this movie was sort of taken away from him in a way by uh by canon uh in the typical canon way you know they would sort of promise everything up front you'd make a movie and then they would just sort of it would just sort of drop out they would just sort of drop out of any support they would give the movie afterwards do you have any idea how life force is received more broadly by horror fans hooper fans by people who stumble upon this movie now if, yeah. if Knight Riders is one that is viewed as a kind of hidden gem in Romero's filmography right. and one that Romero loved yeah. uh, do you know if, do you hear people talking about how Life Force is a movie that needs to be rediscovered uh, yeah I do and, and the Shot Factory put it put this out on Blu-ray and it's it's sort of growing um, a bigger audience now because because of that uh, and I but I also think it's more friendly to a wider audience than something like Certainly, something like Night Riders. I mean, Night Riders is, was, is, and always will be. I think a niche movie mm-hmm. because it is. It's two hours and fifteen minutes long. It's there are these really long action sequences of people jousting on motorcycles, and 
I could see how it could be boring or uninteresting or people just wouldn't get it or want to get it. Because the action isn't about just the thrill of it. It's about right. how did these movements perpetuate this ideal of chivalry that right. these men are longing for. Right, absolutely. I mean, and they're, and they're, they're genuinely wanting to win this, this contest to please their king or to move up or whatever. But right. yeah, very, very in the chivalric tradition. Um, with Life Force, it's, um, you know, as with uh, Romero and the word zombie, you know, they, they don't, I think they use the word vampires in the movie, but very sparingly, right. you know, so there's this idea of taking a traditional trope or, and, and sort of giving it this modern, unique modern twist. And I think if you're a fan of Alien, it, this is a pretty it fascinating is. pair with yeah. Alien. And I know that Ridley Scott has said that Texas Chainsaw Massacre was phenomenally influential in right. his crafting of the horror elements of Alien. Yeah. So to see Alien kind of filtered back into something that Hooper did is yeah, pretty interesting. Alien would be an interesting close study for all of the hands that sort of went into that from from Ridley Scott to Giger to Walter Hill to Dan O'Bannon, you know. Um that would be an interesting close study there. Um, we're at the very end of the episode, <laughs> and I, I know that uh, we could probably talk about Night Riders and Life Force for for a little bit. But for yeah. I guess, let's see. What's the last last question I want to ask you? And we we read this op ed by by Kenneth Turan, a, a film critic for the LA uh, LA Times, who has been a lifelong skeptic of horror movies. Right. And I know that we haven't been speaking about horror films in this particular episode, but right. you know that genre is what has defined the careers of of Romero and Hooper. Right. And I wonder as, as we look out onto, you know, as, as we think about these two filmmakers and, you know, scary movies around Halloween, uh, is there either something about reflecting on, on Night Riders and Life Force that makes you feel all the more passionately about how people should go out and watch movies by these two directors? Or do you just want to make a blanket statement for why horror is worth, <laughs> is worth watching? Because I know you feel strongly about that too. Yeah, you know, I constantly struggle with, with my wife because I have, you know, these, I have these nine-year-old twin daughters and I'm, I'm trying to introduce them to things that are age appropriate, but I like to, I every once in a while, I kind of want to challenge them with something. And my wife says, you know, no, no, they're not ready for that to which I usually agree. Um, but I can't wait for my kids to grow up, you know, to be 15, 16, 17, so that there are really no rules anymore for what I can show them. Because I think horror in all of its various forms and all of its machinations and all of its, is severity um usually if it's if it's if it's intelligently done has one something to say about its about the culture in which it's made or reflects the culture it's made in some way and is an incredible release um the people that i see and i think i've said maybe even the same thing on this show before the people you meet at horror conventions or uh, horror film festivals or just standing outside smoking cigarettes after a horror movie are some of the most well-adjusted, likable, nice people you've ever met because horror offers a way to in innocently release these ideas and these fears into and out of yourself. You know, it's, it, I, I love horror movie and I, I don't just watch horror movies, but, but I, I watch mostly horror movies and um i just i just love them for for those reasons and generally for the community that they foster and inspire 
that I, I could not have said it better myself. <laughs> and what better year to be celebrating horror movies than 2017 when we have Jordan Peele's Get Out being one of the most successful <sighs> movies of the year, but so also great. one of the most trenchant you know, social critiques and, yeah. and also just best made movies of, right. of the year. So it is a, a good time uh, for, for socially relevant horror movies right. and well-made horror movies. And I don't know if George Romero saw that, but I guarantee he would have loved that movie. Joe, it is such a pleasure to have you Likewise. on. Thank you for picking these two movies, yeah. and uh, I hope to have you back on the show uh, yeah. sometime soon. All right, then. Thanks, Tom. All right. Uh, you can find over two years of uh, conversations about uh, radio in New Haven at deepfocusradio.com. Um, we'll catch up with you next Thursday for another episode.